codes verified. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Welcome to Trek It Out with Priority One, and now your hosts. And welcome to the show. Mr. Robert Hurt is joining us of NASA's JPL. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great, and uh, of course, if I want to be pedantic, I could say that's Dr. Robert Hurt. But... Ooh, that's right. That's right. Well, hey, you earned it. <laughs> it's, it's, my, uh, it's my evil supervillain name, Dr. Hurt. How could I... Uh... <laughs> He heals more than hurts, but still, that's pretty. That's pretty awesome. That's a very character name. Well, it's one of the reasons it was safer to become an astronomer than, say, a pediatrician. Absolutely. Well, it's great to have you on the show, and uh, and and just for the audience, uh, a little background: we met uh, Doctor Hurt here in Vegas uh, while we were all there at the convention uh, during the. I think it was the uh, Dine with the Debs event when you came up, and uh, we got to meet you. That's correct. Yes. And I was jealous right off the bat because you had one of those bitchin' little Roddenberry die-cast Enterprise Ds that I wanted so bad. Ah, I got I got the next to last one. I, uh, I had to had to yeah. round off the, uh, the set of Enterprises sitting on my dresser in the bedroom because my, my original model kit was a little fractured over the years. Nice. Oh, such a sweet find. <laughs> it is. It is. They were really nice quality too. I was really surprised how how well detailed they were for a diecast. I have to say, I'm when I'm not being an astronomer, I'm also a bit of a model maker, and I have a lot of model kits I've assembled and painted over the years. I'm always super super paranoid about getting them to look just like the effects model. And one of the reasons I tend not to buy the toys is they just don't look good enough. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, that one impressed me. It looks right beautiful aztec job they really did a fantastic job with the interior lighting it was yeah. really one of the nicest you know kind of toy models i've ever seen so agreed yeah and it's uh I, i'm the same i'm a model builder so i i I, ha- I hold that same scrutiny uh to to kits that are pre-made so i understand but Let's uh, let's why don't we get on to the, the the magic here? Let's uh, let's talk about Spitzer. That's uh, you know when you came up, and you introduced yourself, and, and you made us aware of the fact that you uh, worked at JPL and that you were on the uh, Spitzer Space Telescope program. So, you know, so many people go, "What's Spitzer? Who's Spitzer?" You know, all people ever know is Hubble, 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 Hubble. So, <laughs> I think for our listeners who don't know any better, um, why don't you um, y- let me ask you? Um, you know how is it? How are they different? Like, where, where, what's Hubble and what is Spitzer, and why the two s- space telescopes and how they're different? Certainly. Well, um, the Spitzer Space Telescope is actually the fourth and final installment of NASA's Great Observatory Program. The first, of course, was Hubble, uh, and the idea in the '80s, the the Decal Survey for Astronomy for NASA, basically said, you know, what we need to do is fly not just one, but a fleet of telescopes in space, beyond the atmosphere, where they can operate you know, without having to worry about weather, and each covering a different part of the spectrum, because we get a more complete picture by not just sampling one slice here or one slice there, right? We're, of course, very visibly biased creatures, because you know, our eyes receive a very narrow little slice of what we call visible light, kind of arrogantly. But uh, what we really need to do to get the whole picture is to go well beyond that little slice. Now, um, Spitzer is the infrared component of the uh, Great Observatory Program. We were the last to fly. We launched in um, November uh, 2003 uh, from uh, the Kennedy Space Flight Center. And we basically span from the near into the far infrared. So we're picking up wavelengths of light that are much longer than uh, uh, the wavelengths seen by Hubble. We have a little bit of overlap. Hubble, Hubble goes a little bit into the near-infrared, but Spitzer sort of picks up where Hubble starts off, and then we go all the way out to wavelengths of light at uh, 100 microns or so, compared to sort of the half-micron light that our, our eyes will see. Right, yeah, because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, because you're the doctor, <laughs> but the... Uh... 
I think ever since the basically the discovery of the uh, you know electromagnetic spectrum, um, we've basically discovered that the universe is such a much more in depth uh, in what we can actually see, hear, taste. What the five senses can pick up is less than one tenth of reality. Correct? Oh, even even less than one tenth. Right? You have. Uh... You have wavelengths going down to uh, uh, to you know less than a nanometer on the X-ray, X-ray side of things, and even shorter when you get into the gamma rays, uh, all the way out into the radio, where wavelengths of light expand out to meters and even kilometers uh, in in length. And of course, all this is is you know, and light, right, is just just oscillations of electric and magnetic waves. Uh, that's why we call it electromagnetic radiation, and it, it's it's all the same thing, right? It's it's just a difference of how closely spaced are these uh, electric fields from one another as they go propagating through space, and just that that kind of spacing, that that frequency of oscillation, creates that whole wide variety of effects. That on one end, in the gamma rays, we think of as radiation and damaging, and, and on the other end, we think of radio waves as things you get into the TV. But really, they're all different aspects of the same thing that we see with our eyes. Right, right. And so Spitzer, uh, by filling in the infrared, and I should mention, of course, Hubble is the visible light component of the great observatories. The uh, Compton Gamma Ray Observatory, which uh, flew in the 90s, covered the really, really high energy part of the sky. And among other things, was looking for things like the source of gamma ray bursters out in space. And then the Chandra X-ray Observatory, which is also flying, covers sort of the intermediate high energy range of the spectrum. And so together, they form a fleet of ships that sort of covered the entire range of, uh, of light spectrum with then by the time you get into radio, you go to ground-based telescopes and so forth. But, but yeah, each one is like its own separate sensor illuminating a different part of the spectrum and basically opening us up to a whole different set of phenomena that are hard to perceive at other wavelengths. Now, is this fleet always pointing in the same direction, pointing at the same target? Um, almost never. In fact, Compton finished its mission and was 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 gracefully put down into the, I believe, Pacific Ocean uh, back at the end of the 90s. So it's not even up there anymore currently. Uh, Spitzer, Chandra, and Hubble are all run independently of one another and typically are off pointing off in, in wildly different directions. Once in a while, something interesting happens, and there's a great effort made to do a synchronized observing program where they're all staring at the same thing at the same time. I, honestly, I don't remember the last time we did that, though. It's, very, it's a very rare kind of event for that. Normally, you're working kind of disjoint, but if there's a timed event or something that you're trying to all pick up on at the same time, like, for instance, when um, uh, we sent the uh, impactor into uh, uh, deep, the deep impact mission into uh, Temple, Temple 9, was it? The, um, you know, Spitzer and H- uh, Hubble were actually working in tandem during that event, you know, observing across the spectrum. I, I don't remember. If, I don't think we were expecting x-rays from that one, but, uh, but I could be mistaken. Now, that's interesting the the deep impact that was the one where we uh, launched uh, the little satellite into the side of the it was an asteroid right a uh, comet or a comet yes a comet and they they wanted to see what kind of particles came out and everything like that right and what was created from the impact I, I remember that a little bit um, I just read the highlights in the news very briefly but um, that's interesting and and I see where you're, where you're talking about now when you have like an event like that I could see where you'd want to see all the different you know spectrums to see what's going on and so in, in infrared basically for for again for kind of layman's terms basically is a spectrum light it's basically heat correct i mean we're looking at anything that gives off uh, a type of energy has uh, you know radiates a certain amount of of heat infrared correct that that's that's correct and and i guess the the thing that's interesting to note that in some way all light is actually heat but we do tend to think of the infrared more as heat compared to other parts of the spectrum because in the sort of temperature ranges that we work with, that's the kind of radiation that we perceive as heat falling on our skin. Like you, you turn on a, a radiant heater in, in your, your bathroom or something and you, your skin warms up. That's because infrared light is coming from the heater and hitting your skin and causing it to, to feel warm. But in some sense, even visible light is generated as a function of heat as well, just much higher temperatures. You know, a filament in a light bulb is actually at thousands of degrees Kelvin and it's gener- and that's so hot that it actually puts off light in the visible spectrum. But what's particularly interesting about the infrared is, like you and I, our bodies have a, a particular temperature. They're uh, um, you know around 300 degrees Kelvin, give or take, uh, and that is cool enough that 
we don't put out visible light, right? We're not glowing in the visible part of the spectrum, except for the occasional Star Trek episode. But if you move to longer wavelengths of light, wavelengths that are something about maybe 20 times longer than what we see with our eyes, you actually are glowing. So one of the uh, things that we use for outreach events with the public is we have a camera that operates at a wavelength around 10 microns. And it's really cool, uh, really cool to look at this because you, you look at people in that and all of a sudden you don't see their skin color. You see their temperature patterns. You see the patterns of where veins are closer to the surface radiating more heat. You see the eyes glow really vividly brightly because the eyeballs are actually much warmer, set deeper into the head than, say, your cheeks are or your nose, which is often very cold. So we're seeing these thermal emissions, but the idea is we're seeing thermal emissions for the things that are a few hundred degrees to maybe a few tens of degrees above absolute zero. Whereas in visible light, now you're talking about things that are thousands of degrees so it ends up looking like a predator mask view? <laughs> it does. It does, actually. That's, uh, in fact, Predator was a great movie because it's something everyone uh, uh, gets because that was one of the first kind of popular media things that ever really showed the idea of what a thermal view camera would do. Right. right into a fun sci-fi context. Which really spoiled real life for me when I got to, to use uh, uh, what was called a nifty when I was in the, the military. It was, it was a naval firefighting tool, but basically it was an infrared camera so that you could check smoky rooms, you know, and look for bodies. And it's just the the white on black type infrared, right? Which was right. I was looking for like the predator view, and I thought I was going to have fun, and this thing was going to be cool. And I was like, this is really boring. It's all black and white. <laughs> well, it's really boring until you realize that like you can turn all the lights off in the room, and you can still perfectly well see all the walls, the ceiling, the uh, you know, and maneuver. By looking at that, because you are that that device can relate to you the light that your eye isn't seeing. That's true. That's true. Robert, I want to take a moment uh, and, in the magic of editing, pretend like we're we're going back a moment. And um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How, uh, your background, your education. How how did you get into astronomy? I, I see you're a North Carolinian, like my wife. Ah, okay. He, he went uh, to Chapel Hill, sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> Go Tar Heels. <laughs> No secrets in the ages of, of social media. <laughs> the, um, sure, yeah. Uh, well, I was uh, born and raised in North Carolina. And I think, I honestly, I spent a good part of my life trying very hard not to be an astronomer. Because I grew up watching Star Trek. I grew up never even remembering watching an episode of the original Trek for the first time. It's like I always knew because I was, before I could even talk probably i was watching star trek and i always loved space i loved astronomy i every uh, science book that had an astronomy section i would you know read but i kept thinking that wasn't a very practical career so i kept trying to make much more practical decisions i was going to be an architect and then by the time i got to college i was going to be a chemist and then i discovered i hated organic chemistry so i <laughs> be a physicist uh i even got to grad school intending to go into an esoteric branch of physics known as plasma physics which at the time seemed really exciting because we knew that fusion power was going to be the clean energy source of the future that'd be a great thing to be involved with well, I discovered I actually hated plasma physics when I was actually <laughs> having to do the, uh, the actual math. But I ended up just taking um, an astronomy class on the side to basically not get stuck in a lab that I really did not want to take in my second year of grad school. And it was called something really drab. It was the interstellar medium. I was thinking, you know, it's going to be better than the lab. But that class was so brilliantly interesting. You know, the most boring thing you could think of, the stuff between the stars – right? It's not even like the planets and the stars. And yet that class was so fascinating. It reminded me how excited I was about astronomy. And, you know, I decided, eh, I might as well finish the degree and do it in something fun. And, uh, you know, it kind of worked out. I, uh, uh, I, I still live here. I, I was an undergrad at Chapel Hill is, uh, uh, back in North Carolina. Um, and then I moved out to Los Angeles for grad school. I got my uh, PhD from UCLA. And, um, you know, I, I've been able to make a good use of the degree ever since. And I have actually been out in Los Angeles ever since. So I, I got to attribute, you know, I, I, on some level, I have to wonder if I would have ever been a scientist or certainly an astronomer if, you know, it weren't for Star Trek and it weren't for Mr. Spock inspiring me. Uh, as a kid, to have a show that actually had a message point that science is a wonderful and, and fantastic thing. And the universe is filled with things that, that we want to go find and explore. And to have a main character as a positive role model, as a scientist 
whose who's quest for reaching the, the truth, the logical truth, was a good thing. I mean, this is a, this is a rare, rare thing, especially in, in, in today's society. It's such a kind of a knee-jerk, science is the enemy on all fronts thread running through almost all media. This is, I think, for me, one of the most powerful inspirational sides of Star Trek uh, is that, you know, it, it sort of stands against the noise to say, you know, rational discourse and going out there and doing things because they're the moral thing, not because they're the convenient thing. And, you know, looking at the universe dispassionately and, and looking for the truth of it rather than what your agenda would have the universe be, I think, for me, was a powerful message growing up. And it's, you know, it kind of really drove me into science. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember a little piece of trivia that you fed us at Vegas saying that uh, you had actually tried out to be a scientific advisor on Star Trek The Next Generation, correct? Indeed. I guess that's my one real uh, uh, tie to the uh, classic Trek uh, uh, canon here is that um, when I was in grad school at UCLA, I actually uh, got myself um, on the pitch list for uh, Next Generation. And uh, I, uh, I did my first spec script, like all first spec scripts were terrible. But my second one was actually pretty good. Got me on the pitch list. I, I must have pitched there a good half dozen times uh, between uh, TNG and DS9. But during Next Generation, when they were uh, switching over, uh, Narain Shankar was their... Um, was he their, yeah, he was their, their science advisor at the time. He was uh, moving on to become story editor on the show, and they were interviewing for a new science uh, advisor. And they <laughs> Officer. Tempted to say, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, oddly, they, they don't, don't issue uh, comm badges and uniforms when you get that. It's, it's something weird about that. But, you yeah, know, uh, I had already pitched stories a few times to them, and they remembered I was a, an astronomer at UCLA and brought me in. Uh, I, I did not get the job, but um, on some level, I think I'm, I'm a little saner for it on, uh, oh, yes, obviously, I would have loved it, and, you know, that would have been a whole different uh, direction in my life. But uh, I, I think on some level, I would have gotten a little frustrated getting a script saying, well, we need to tech the tech, and then we'll all turn back to our normal age. You know, because <laughs> a good part of the science advisor position on Star Trek really was filling in techno babble for them. Not so much judging, is this good science? What could you do would be better science? And on on some level, I'm I've always been a lot more motivated about science education and trying to get people excited about uh, the universe and the real universe, in addition to uh, our our wonderful uh, imaginations of what it might be. Sure, that's understandable. So. Now, you have to be a bit of an engineer for your job, too, I would say, right? Because, I mean, there's a lot of technical aspects to working on the telescope and stuff. I mean, for instance, I know there are parts in there, due to the infrared uh, parts of the, of the telescope, that have to be you know, maintained um, at, at absolute zero or below, right? So that you can get true infrared readings and pictures. Yet, there are computer components in there that have to operate it. Uh, room temperature. So there's there's a cryo section of the telescope, and then a room temp section of the telescope. So you, I mean, there's a lot of uh, you know uh, techno engineering involved in this thing here to to make all these different pieces work at different temperatures and such. Oh, that's that's absolutely true. And and the engineering that went into Spitzer was was truly uh, uh, groundbreaking. Um, the original mission for Spitzer was was spec to be much more expensive, uh, like four times the cost, and to have a uh, ultimately for a shorter lifespan because they were going to build Spitzer the way they normally build an infrared telescope, which you take the whole telescope and all the instruments and everything, and you sink it deep down inside a big door of liquid helium, and that stuff keeps the whole thing cool, and but it boils off over time, and once the liquid helium goes away, your telescope stops working, uh, and you know in orbit around the Earth. But the thing is, that stuff is really heavy to launch into space. And when the feeling at NASA was, okay, your challenge, do the same science, but do it for a quarter of the cost on a smaller launch vehicle. The engineers came up with this really smart design that no one had tried before, where they basically you know, put up a sun shield to shield the telescope, uh, have that connect down to the little spacecraft electronics part through these thermal struts that let very little heat kind of leak through, and then separate that from the actual telescope with another set of thermal struts and, and baffles. And then the really clever thing was basically paint the part of the telescope that sort of faces away from the sun, like absolute flat black. And the parts that face towards the sun and the hot things, paint that silver. 
And so what happens is they actually designed the telescope to be a, a passive cooling refrigerator that basically the parts where, where they heat up are, are, are the reflective surfaces point in that direction. And so it tends to not let the heat, you know, warm up the telescope because it just tends to reflect away. But the parts that are facing away from the sun are black. And black not only absorbs heat, but it also radiates heat very, very effectively. So Spitzer is basically this special heat pump system that even in the absence of any liquid helium whatsoever, the telescope part actually stays, will naturally cool itself down to about 30 degrees above absolute zero. And that's actually really phenomenally cool. Well, if you get the telescope just naturally cooling down to 30K, turns out you only need a fraction of the liquid helium to cool it down the rest of the way to uh, down to like maybe three or four degrees of absolute zero. And being very careful about how we planned our observations, we stretched what was likely to be maybe four or so years of life into six years of coolant. But the bonus, the cherry on top, I guess, was that after we did finally run out of liquid helium, one of the three instruments on Spitzer actually could still function as long as it was kept cooled down to about 30 degrees Kelvin. So one of the instruments basically has uh, ongoing extended life that we are continuing to use. And so um, when Spitzer ran out of liquid helium, it's, you know, and, and Spitzer's actually off, it's not even orbiting the Earth. It's actually off or in a, a solar orbit, little larger orbit than the Earth's orbit. So we, we call it an Earth trailing. It actually just drifts further and further away from the Earth over time just uh, in its own solar orbit. Right now, Spitzer is actually about as far away from the Earth as we are from the sun. Mm. And it just keeps kind of drifting further and further away. But what's amazing is even that was kind of a bonus to Spitzer because now we only had one instrument that worked at two wavelengths in the infrared, but we had a lot more time. We could kind of beat at things. And so Spitzer has actually made this really cool transformation that now it can actually do a whole new kinds of science that it really didn't do in the primary mission where the observations had to be a lot shorter and more focused. So, I mean, one of the things Spitzer can do now is it can actually help us study the conditions on, uh, on exoplanets orbiting other stars. And what's phenomenal is when we launched, it was very clear in our material that we prepared for the press and the media and the, the, the public was Spitzer is not an exoplanet mission. It is not going to study planets around other stars. It, it's not designed to do this. Huh. But by, uh, by having this really amazing engineering team and science team, we actually have basically characterized the instruments on Spitzer. There's a pixel on one of our arrays that is so well characterized that it can do measurements to you know, something like you know, a part in a million or, or, or better. And it, we know it wow. so well. We know every bit, every property of that pixel so well that we've actually been able to indirectly use Spitzer to see the, the actual light from exoplanets. Yeah. Not directly right it's all blurry but what we can do is if we wait for an exoplanet to pass behind its star you know we actually can play this trick that beforehand we see the light of the star which is a large amount of light plus a little bit coming from the exoplanet and when it moves into eclipse that little there'll be a little drop in light a few parts and you know maybe 10,000 or so but if we can measure that drop we know how much light's coming from the exoplanet and that tells us things about the actual surface conditions of a planet around another star. Yeah, the same way our atmosphere reflects the sunlight, right? Yeah. So, you know, it, it, just knowing how bright a planet is can actually tell us things about what its temperature structure is, what the atmosphere is like, how reflective it is. Uh, these observations have let us figure out that these hot Jupiters, uh, these you know, Jupiter-sized planets that orbit in just a few days, uh, we actually know from the thermal properties that Spitzer's been able to measure that these things actually are really dark. Their atmospheres are probably uh, like, like black as soot almost. Because we, we can calculate. We know how big the planet is. We know how much light is coming off of it in the infrared. We know how much light it's receiving from the sun. And we know how much of that it would have to absorb in order to reach the temperature that it would have to reach in order to glow as brightly as we saw it. It's this whole kind of cool chain of logic you can go through, but you can actually start calculating surface temperatures and cloud properties and things like that. So Spitzer, together working with Hubble and, and Kepler and, and various other missions, we're actually becoming an interplanetary weatherman. That's incredible. Now, where is James Webb going to fit in in all this when it comes out? So James Webb, um, which is uh, uh, often referred to as the successor to Hubble, I think you have to more properly say it's actually the, the uh, grandchild of Hubble and Spitzer. 
because it's going to combine having a large mirror uh, like like Hubble does for visible light, but in the infrared, as you go to longer wavelengths, you actually have to make a proportionally larger mirror to get the same sharpness in the image. It has sort of the resolving power of Hubble, but it's working in the, inf- the infrared regime that Spitzer does. And so it's really going to be kind of an amalgam of the science of the two missions. Um, Spitzer can observe more, uh, more sky, more, more area. Uh, James Webb is going to be much more, much, a much smaller field of view, but much higher resolution. And so together, Spitzer and Hubble have sort of set up the science that James Webb will do when it launches. And it will basically, through that resolution and that sensitivity, really bring us into finding more about the properties of the very youngest galaxies, even hopefully down to seeing the light from that you know, very first generation of stars that turned on after the Big Bang, when the, you know, the, the, the initial clouds of hydrogen and helium gas condensed to the, these, into these proto-galaxies. Uh, some, there was a first generation of stars that ignited. And we, that's sort of been kind of this... this uh, holy grail of astronomy is to see that era, the epic of first light. Right. And uh, that, that's one thing. Of course, it will also help us see into dust clouds where stars are forming. Uh, what well, may actually help us resolve the light and, and, and see in certain situations uh, uh, exoplanets orbiting stars. There's going to be a tremendous amount of science, that, that's sort of a, a blend of what Hubble and Spitzer have been doing, that it will open up a new frontier. Now, has there been anything new that you've seen lately with the regards to the uh, measuring of the universe expansion using the infrared? Uh, yes. The, uh, in fact, we had a press release that came out uh, recently from Spitzer where one of the original key projects of the Hubble mission was to measure these variable stars that we can see in other galaxies that have a really cool property that the, they, they vary over days or months of time. But the period of their variation uh, actually tells you just how bright they are. And so as a result, these become something we call standard candles. You know, basically, if you see something that's very faint a long ways away, but you know exactly how bright that object is, and you can measure how faint it appears to you now, you can actually calculate how far it must be to be producing the amount of light that you see. So these, uh, these variable stars, these Cepheid variables... Are, are fantastic in astrophysics as standard candles because we know from observing nearby ones that we can sort of measure the, uh, the, the distance to more directly that there's this really good relationship between their period and their brightness or their, their luminosity. Well, what Spitzer let us do was study these same variable stars but in the infrared. And one of the properties of the infrared is that Dust clouds that sort of block our view, like like on a like a you know, like a hazy sunset, right? Dust clouds tend to scatter short wavelengths of light and let the longer wavelengths come through. Mm-hmm. That's why a sunset looks red to us because the blue already gets scattered out into the atmosphere, and the red is the only thing kind of coming through. Well, that keeps happening even when you push into the infrared, and as you get to those longer wavelengths, they start just going right through the dust as if it wasn't even there. So one of the uncertainties in figuring out just exactly what this period luminosity relationship is on these variable stars was, well, if there's a little bit of dust between here and that star, we don't know exactly how bright the star really is, right? Because that dust might be blocking a little bit. But by going into the infrared, that dust kind of goes away. And we are able to make a much more precise measurement of that uh, variation in brightness. In doing so, it lets us tighten up our, our, uh, our period luminosity law for those variable stars. And then that is kind of a first rung in our distance ladder that we start using to f- figure out exactly how far away galaxies are as you go further and further off. And the whole thing basically lets us come up with a much more precise measurement of the, uh, the Hubble constant, the, uh, the uh, sort of the expansion rate of the universe. And so Spitzer basically uh, was able to... Uh, uh, tighten up that measurement, give us sort of three times the accuracy we had from that original Hubble project. And what's interesting is it actually matched almost exactly uh, a similar research study that did a slightly different way of doing that same measurement. And in science, it's always good when you do two different measurements of the same thing and you get the same answer. Now you're a lot more certain. Now you're able to see things like, uh, I, I, was, I was reading the site recently and saw that you, you spotted some unraveling nebula and quasars igniting. Oh, 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 yes, yes. Uh, that was actually, that particular one was actually a little more of a Hubble result than a Spitzer result, but it, 
it, again, it shows when you use these two telescopes together, the kind of science you can do that uh, Hubble has this sharpness, but it only goes so far into the infrared and some of the light disappears. When you start taking galaxies at great distances and they're so far away and they're moving away from us so quickly, a lot of their light gets redshifted into the infrared part of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So by combining the measurements of these two independent ways of looking at it, the Hubble's sharpness and Spitzer's infrared sensitivity, then you can really start picking out things like which are the most distant galaxies and quasars that are so far away that, uh, that, that we can barely detect them and that have these thermal properties where a quasar basically is a, uh, um, it's a, it's what we call an active galaxy. It's a, it's a distant galaxy that to us seems like a point-like unresolved object because there is a supermassive black hole right in its core. And there's a disk material spinning around it and swirling into it, heating up and you know, right as it kind of gets to the event horizon, it starts to fall in. And so you have this region that's just like a few astronomical units across, you know, like the, something the size of the inner part of a solar system, but it's putting out you know, as much energy as a good fraction of the whole galaxy, or even uh, uh, when you're looking right at it, much, much brighter than the rest of the galaxy combined. And the thermal properties that does actually help you understand what's going on in this weird disk material that's falling into the black hole. So again, black holes are something everyone's fascinated with, this idea of, of, of a, a region of space where the matter has been crushed so densely that even light can't escape. Those th- black holes are so small, there's absolutely nothing we can use to observe directly. It always seems like we're one step away from being able to see the black hole or, or get more feedback from it. Always seems to be one step away. Every, like every year that we get closer and closer to, to, uh, to getting detail from um, uh, uncovering black holes and uh, all over the galaxies, you know, it's just so close and yet not there yet. Well, we're still, when it comes to actually resolving, like having an actual picture of a black hole where you can see the gravitational distortion warping the light around it, we are, we are several steps from that still. I mean, if, if you consider, you take something the size of our sun and you crush it into a black hole, it's only going to be about a kilometer across, like half a mile across. Uh, that, that 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 ain't big. <laughs> we uh, we have a hard time seeing asteroids that are a kilometer across in the asteroid belt, right? right? They're little specks, right? So uh, and even even these supermassive black holes in the centers of galaxies, right? Those are just a few million times the mass of the sun, which means they are maybe a few million kilometers across, which is still the size of the inner part of the solar system, right? It's, it's 93 million miles from here to the center of, uh, to, to, our, to our sun, right? You know, something that's a few million miles across is bigger than our sun, but it's still really small compared to, uh, 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 you know, the, the distances to other galaxies that we're talking about. Yeah. So I have a, a question about, you know, I'm, I'm always fascinated by, by light and gravity and, and the density of space. And, and there's so many different things, um, you know, dark matter and dark energy. And there's so many different things that we're just now really starting to even really discover and, and kind of trying to learn how to quantify and measure and all these different things. But one of the ones that's really, really gotten my attention, and I just, I just love how it works and, and all the factors that, that, that bend around it is, is gravitational lensing. Um, and... I'm curious how that plays. Like when you're looking at this, you know, these images coming back through the telescope and stuff, how can you tell when the light's been, you know, bent around a gravity well or different things like that where you, where you pick up those gravitational lensings and stuff like that? How, is there a way that you can see that or tell basically by its spectrum that it's, it, that it's been bent or, or had to come from an odd trajectory that's not direct light? Sure. There, in fact, lensing factors in in, in, in several different ways. And I, I guess sort of the most visually dramatic way that, that you can actually determine that there is a, a lens effect going on is when you're looking at distant massive galaxy clusters and the, the, the total mass of that cluster is actually quite large. It's large enough that if there are even more distant galaxies back behind it, the lens effect is actually going to be absolutely observable. And you will actually see pictures of galaxies that are warped into these long stripes that appear just 
right there behind the things in the foreground. And you look at that, and, and it's just it's almost obvious. You see these weird circular arcs, and it looks just like a kind of a distorted magnifying glass in front of some bright spots behind it. And so that itself is just uh, intrinsically obvious. But then you can even ask yourself, well, you see the same, maybe you see this little broken up arc in a couple spots. Is that really just a picture of one thing that got distorted? Or maybe they're just a bunch of, happen to be a weird long galaxies that are all in a line. Well, then you can go and you can actually look at the spectrum of each of those little blobs of light, which gives you sort of the fingerprint of the exact chemical makeup of, of the things generating that light. And you can actually find if these different objects all have exactly the same spectrum, then it's sort of like having the same fingerprint. You know, like, oh yeah, they're the same. Uh, it's the same object, just broken up and warped so it appears several different spots in the sky. And so, yeah, you can completely convince yourself that that uh, what you are seeing is the product of a foreground lens distorting something you can really look at. But um, It's, it's almost thing- like seeing something in the desert, right? Like through the heat radiation. Now, I know heat radiation distorting the light's uh, you know, image is, is different than the gravitational lensing of it, but, but it's kind of that same kind of like effect that you're seeing in a way, that, that, that distortion in, in the light coming through to where it looks wavy or, or bent or, or stretched, correct? Yeah, yeah, because because you know in in the case of heat right waves what's happening really is you have like some hot air and you have some cold air and that causes the path of the light to bend as you get sort of the interface between something that's hot and cold much the same way that when you get to the interface between air and glass you know there's something we call index of refraction that tells how light will bend when you come to you know an interface between two areas right so in, with heat you know it's the different temperatures that are causing the path of the light to distort slightly and move in different directions a little bit, and then that gives the warping effect. In the, with the gravitational lens, it's the actual shape of space-time, if you will, that is changing the path that the light follows. And uh, so, at some level, yes, that's a, that is a more fundamental effect. But on a on a basic level, it is the same idea, right? The path of the light is being distorted by the medium it's passing through. In the case of a gravitational lens, that medium is the actual shape of the space itself. That is right because it's because of the density of the object, be it a planet or a star or whatever. Right, it creates a gravity well in space. Literally, it's like kind of like if you held a sheet of paper and put a, a marble in the middle, how that how it would dip down in the middle where the weight of the marble is. And so, if you rolled another marble, it would kind of roll down to that spot and around it and out again. Right. Exactly that that and you know the, the whole like rubber trampoline model is actually a really wonderful two-dimensional analogy to the sort of the Einsteinian uh, uh, space-time math. And it's, it's so great that, I mean, the, the analogy is right. You have, to, you have to sort of imagine a two-dimensional universe, a trampoline that gets distorted in that third direction. And as a three-dimensional being, we can look and say, oh, obviously the marble will roll in a curved path because we can see the direction it gets distorted in. Whereas, you know, something like a flatland creature living on that trampoline wouldn't see it. You know, they would just see, weird, it just changed its direction for no reason I can see. Because for me, it's just all moving in the sheet of the, the trampoline, right. right? And then you have to imagine now, you just have to take that analogy and expand it out to four dimensions, right? And imagine being this four-dimensional creature looking at our beautiful little three-dimensional trampoline universe and say, oh, yeah, well, I see where that, that black hole has distorted that three-dimensional space off in that fourth dimension direction so it's obvious why the path of the the marble goes you know around and gets deflected because you know clearly i see where it's going we in a three-dimensional universe can't see that extra dimension things are getting kind of stretched into that you know einstein showed that was equivalent to stretching it in the time dimension basically uh but uh but it is it's nice that there is at least an analogy that we can wrap our brains around for something that's much harder to uh, to imagine so can, you, can you walk us through your, your daily routine, uh, maybe a little bit about your team as well? What, what is a day in the life of JPL? Sure. Well, um, well in fact, my job on Spitzer, uh, I'm actually part of the public affairs group. So we're really involved in the, uh, uh, the communication of science uh, and our press release results. Uh, sort of, you know, we're the we're the interpreters between the journal and the astrophysical journal and and the uh, and the public, the news media, and uh, and the, you know anyone who's interested in astronomy. And people like uh, us, exactly. Like priority and, one. Uh, and my particular job is actually one of the coolest that I never imagined 
existed when I was in grad school is I sort of, uh, my, my title, my unofficial title really is uh, visualization scientist. And so I get to be sort of the interface between the data and the science and anything that comes out to visually represent that. So uh, I get to work with the, the amazing data sets that come down from uh, Spitzer and uh, actually from a number of other missions that we support as well and take the, uh, the, the, the full dynamic range of the, uh, the observation and turn that into the imagery that we put out to, to show you know, what the universe looks like beyond the visible. And uh, I also get to do some artwork, some illustrations, anything to try to get an idea across in a visual way. And I work closely with our, uh, our uh, press writer, Whitney Clavin, who's a, a JPL, a Jet Propulsion Lab uh, uh, rep in the media office. And you know, together, um, we sort of design how to tell a story. And uh, our group's responsible for you know the websites and the uh, uh, the education outreach sites, things like this to uh, to get this across. But um, but I, I have to say you know I, I grew up when I wasn't reading books about astronomy. I was drawing pictures. I was I started doing astronomical artwork when I was in high school. I had a very tolerant uh, uh, art teacher who, uh, as long as I would do that negative space still life chair drawn upside down one week she would let me try to paint nebula the next week you know so <laughs> i totally did that art test thing and the backwards drawing and the upside down chair and the <laughs> it's a woman no it's a no it's a girl no it's an old woman and all of that <laughs> uh, so but my day is uh it, it's a little off from the usual uh, astronomer's day in that uh, you know i'm i'm usually intimately connected into photoshop and uh uh working with um software to help you know create these uh these images uh i may be uh, helping work write up a caption for some of the images uh i may be working on an animation or a piece of artwork to go with it uh Right now, we actually have a little side event that uh, a lot of the office is involved with because um, we're very proud here in Los Angeles. We, we got a new resident uh, uh, last month, the uh, Endeavor, uh, the uh, last of the space shuttle fleet, uh, arrived to its permanent home here at the California Science Center. And uh, there's going to be a big opening week event that uh, will be happening at the, the Science Center starting like, a, like the Tuesday before Halloween. It'll run through the weekend. And uh, it turns out that um, since we're local to this event, uh, we're sort of coordinating all the plans for the big NASA astrophysics room. So, you know, uh, Spitzer and Chandra and Hubble and a bunch of other missions as well uh, will have a big NASA presence sort of promoting the whole breadth of what NASA does in astrophysics. And uh, we'll have stations manned, we'll have an infrared camera uh, showing the public you know, anyone who comes by, what they look like in the infrared, uh, kind of answering questions, um, uh, having a slideshow running of, you know, the imagery and the artwork to kind of explain the science. So, so public events like that are, are a fun thing that we can do occasionally, too. Are you uh, going to be giving out the uh, Spitzer space goggles from our commercial? Uh, absolutely. As soon as you send me a crate of them, we will make <laughs> sure to, to give them to the first thousand visitors to the Spitzer booth. I know a certain Ferengi that can make that happen. <laughs> Uh, but the but in a more general sense, you know, and what is the day uh, happens in the day uh, in the life of an astronomer? Um, uh, a good deal of uh, uh, any astronomer's day is spent in front of the computer, like like anything else. It is not quite as romantic as going out to the telescope and looking through the eyepiece and jotting down notes, like a, like an historical. But you know, most astronomers are. Uh, uh, decent programmers, uh, everything, you know, nothing is really built to do exactly what you need in astronomy, right? There are a lot of very general clumsy tools you have to use and leverage and you have to write code to sort of make it do what you need because every research project can be different. And so uh, I, I think the one greatest misconception about science from watching even shows like Star Trek and, and you know, anything else that involves scientists. Yeah, I have this idea that there's this lab and there's always like a piece of software that does exactly what you want to do and a little piece of equipment that, that does exactly the measurement you need. And, and, you know, real life is not so clean. It's lots of ugly windows open, writing things in Perl and Python and, and taking things that aren't really designed to measure what you're trying to measure, but finding a way to make it work that way, even though it doesn't really do. And, and uh, because by the time someone's built something that does exactly what you're trying to do everyone's done it to the point that we already know the answer to that you know the interesting answers are always 
trying to collect data in, in, in places that we haven't figured out how to do it yet. That's the, where you the, always the find NASA it. equivalent of duct tape and bubble gum. <laughs> uh, exactly. <laughs> Science really does run on virtual duct tape and bubble gum, and in a few cases, actual duct tape. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Let's talk a little bit about the Astropix project. Your other big project you got going on. Definitely. So, uh, so like I said, my uh, uh, my day job is really focused around. Uh, science visualization and astronomy visualization and there's a small community of, of uh, uh, colleagues I have that are involved with the different telescopes and different missions and it has been sort of a, a long goal that right now to find good astronomical imagery is it's a bit of a crapshoot when you go to just a flat Google search right uh, if you're uh, I invite you to go search sometime for the uh, M17 nebula type that into Google you do not get at astronomy pictures <laughs> you get guns uh, so you have to uh, be careful. But even if you do find images, right, trying to uh, search for the Eagle Nebula in Google, and you'll get like a zillion hits of the same picture. But which one is the original? How can you get back to the original information, the caption, maybe the full resolution version, right? It's very hard to do. So um, for, oh, going on eight years or so now, there's been a group of us who have been trying to come up with sort of a standard way of of catching all of the good descriptive content that goes with every publicly released image, you know, the caption, the, uh, the, the, the list of telescopes that went into making it, the, what wavelengths of light it's operating in, what, what the colors mean in the image. So capturing all that information, embedding it inside the image, and then ultimately building a website that will take all of the telescope missions that are doing this and pull all of those resources into one spot. Well, it's taken us a while, but we actually have a, a public beta running now of the site. Uh, we, we call it Astropix, P-I-X with an X. And um, you guys can uh, put it in the show notes, but the, the URL for it now is uh, astropix.ipac, which is ipac.caltech.edu. And uh, we're still kind of in a beta stage right now, but we're currently drawing images from Spitzer, from Hubble, from Chandra, Galax, WISE, um, uh, the European Southern Observatory uh, uh, soon will be folding in uh, missions like uh, New Star, New X-ray Observatory. And we sort of have one site that has pulled all of the original imagery together. It's all got the same information, all background. So when you look at a picture, if it has uh, information about where it falls on the sky, you can click a little button and a window will pop open and lay it down on the sky so you can see where it goes. Uh, if we have the information of what colors in the image correspond to what parts of the spectrum, there's a little table, a little uh, uh, spectrum thermometer that sort of maps that out for you. Uh, if we know how far away the object is we image, there's a little map, sort of an artist concept of sort of the, the full range from the local stars out to the uh, Big Bang and a little marker saying, yeah, it's roughly out kind of this far in the universe that really is designed to give you a sort of a, a context for that image. But, but moreover, to really let you go and find one place you can go and search and then just get all of the current images that are available for a given object. So. And you, you guys didn't want to call this Starfleet Astrometrics because... <laughs> uh, we, had, we had a long discussion of the name, and believe me, it went back and forth, back and forth. <laughs> but you actually will be uh, pleased to note that uh, actually where I work in the, um, uh, the, main, uh, the main building for the uh, IPAC, the uh, Infrared Processing Analysis Center, which is the sort of home institute for uh, the Spitzer mission. Uh, we're actually building a new uh, uh, expansion to uh, sort of a new uh, conference room that is going to have sort of a glass wall and inside we're going to have a sort of a visualization wall of one of those multi-panel high resolution displays that'll be used to display you know imagery in, in like gigapixel imagery and in its native format and, and uh, I believe the, um, the internal name for that is the Astrometrics Lab. Awesome. <laughs> so when I come to take my tour with you, you'll show me that, right? Absolutely. That tour sounds awesome. It was, uh, uh, we, we were just picking out carpet samples this week. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the funniest thing is uh, my, uh, my, my boss and I, uh, Gordon Squires, we were actually going down 
literally to look at carpet samples and we stepped into the space where they sort of knocked down a wall and between a couple rooms and knocked out a wall to the hallway and we were stepping in there to look at something and we noticed that there was this device sitting in the middle of the room cylindrical device on a little tripod stand and like waist high there was this little clear circular disc shaped thing that was glowing blue and gordon and i both completely stopped looking at the room and looking at the carpet and we were thinking that looks like a transport pattern enhancer why is that sitting in our astrometrics lab <laughs> nice and i had a couple friends come by during the hall i was like come in here look at this what is this the first answer everyone said was uh, that's a pattern enhancer because yes we largely are all Star Trek geeks at uh, the place I work at. So <laughs> so cool. So, you know, I have a question on the Astropix thing. Uh, this, is, this is just such an awesome, oh, it's just such a wonderful site. And what I'm wondering is why, why hasn't it been done before? Because the internet's been around a long time. And, <laughs> and I know it's, it's a great idea because, uh, you know, if I were to go into Google and press, you know, find me awesome images, it's going to throw things that aren't real mixed with artist renditions um, and prediction type art as well as real art, uh, real, sorry, real photos. And, uh, and I'm just surprised this hasn't been done before because it's so important putting this library of um, astronomical observations together. So why? Yeah. Now that is a really good question and and the reason the answer i think is if you actually say contrast google with a site like say wolf from alpha i don't know if you've ever played around with that it's it's a really cool site uh it's by the company that makes mathematica this mathematical analysis software but um oh, but if you have an iphone and use siri uh alpha is one of the things that's plugged in when you ask it a question like how far away is the sun that question gets routed to uh, Wolf from Alpha. And the difference is Google is an uncurated index of the wild and crazy web, whereas Wolf from Alpha is a curated site of technical information. So you will get far more answers to weirder topics on Google, but no clear thread of to which sources are authoritative or not. Whereas Wolf from Alpha, you know, it's actually been curated. You know, it's the difference between a curated encyclopedia and say at Wikipedia, though obviously Wikipedia is, is actually highly accurate when you have enough people you know, beating at it. So it, here it was sort of the same deal. You needed a way, a site that was dedicated to pointing at the authoritative sources of galleries worth of images. And that takes just a bit of effort to build a site that does that. But more importantly, there's all sorts of this cool information about these images on the site. But how is it stored? It's on HTML in a web page, and every website lays it out differently. How do you know what's the position in the sky? Well, I, you, know, you write it out maybe in text. How do you parse it off the web page? The really hard thing is this idea of metadata, the idea that you have to basically say, here's a list of the information we want to capture about an image. And some of it's general. What's the title? What's the caption? What's the object that we're looking at? And that's general. There's, there's been metadata standards to cover that for a long time, and we actually use the existing standard. But then there's all this other stuff that's specific only to astronomy. What is the pixel scale? Where is it centered on the sky? How is it rotated with respect to the celestial north? That you have to add to that. And then you've got to get every institution that makes images to agree, we will tag our images using this standard that we have all built and we all agree on. And that takes, and that means you have to go through sometimes hundreds, even thousands of images in your back catalog. Say, so, okay, I gotta go, and I gotta put, I gotta fill in every field in this database in order to make this happen. And so, really, Astropix is only possible because of a tremendous effort from all of the institutions that are participating. To, you really take the time beyond, above and beyond what your basic requirement in the day to day is of getting that image on the website so people can download it, and making sure that every piece of information about the image has been captured and tagged into the image following the standard that we've all sort of built to enable them all to come into one site and all go into a database that can make sense of all that information. And so that's kind of the magic you don't really see when you get to Astropix, that the fact that you can draw these little color widgets that drop little markers down on the spectrum where the, where the different observations were made, that's only possible because everyone who's tagging their images took the time to put that information in the right format that we could all do it the same way and, and enable these really cool things. 
But what's exciting is, I mean, Astropix has this public site that everyone can go and play with and access. But what we're really looking forward to the future is people who build planetarium software, you know, that virtually every planetarium now uses a digital real-time system. We're looking for those guys to develop hooks into Astropix so they can actually pull images real-time out of our archive. Oh. They drop them in the sky right where they belong. They can The presenter can read the caption right there. It can have access to all that information real-time interactively. And so what we're really excited about is more than just having a cool website you can visit, but to become a back-end that can power planetariums, and museum kiosks, and you know, um, you know, iPad what? apps, and things like that, too. And that's one of my favorite things to do at the observatories. I've been watching the progress of, uh, of planetarium technology since I was born. And I've seen, uh, I've seen it as it changes and how they're able to now um, – well, they, and the Griffith Observatory is a perfect example because after they revamped the whole thing and added the downstairs area with Leonard Nimoy and they've added yeah. uh, a brand new uh, planetarium show and, and – with all the technology and the projections that they do, including the uh, the movie projections on the sky as well. And it's neat while you're watching the show now, instead of just seeing the night sky and seeing a little pointer pen, you know, here, here's a constellation and a couple projections come up and that's it. Now they even have the whole sky going from day to night and they'll even show you what it looks like outside the observatory, but indoors on, you know, projected. And it would be so awesome. I can't wait to see them pull images and information live, like right when it's happening from from Astropix. It's it you know it's it's phenomenal. I mean the the kind of show that Griffith runs right now, like the one you saw, is the you know where they sort of pre-render and they can take you anywhere through a lab out. But the other kind of show that is exciting, because like you say, is this real time kind of show, and and uh, most of the other large digital planetariums around, if you hunt around, you can find times they'll do this is when they do run these real-time shows because now they have software that you know has the Hipparchus catalog of tens of thousands of, of stars where you actually know exactly how far away they are, how bright they are, and all in a database you can fly through in real time. And so they can actually take you out and show you the entire scale of the, the cosmos from the local stars to the structure of galaxies out to the most distant galaxies that we've been able to obtain redshift out to and fly it all through real time and respond to questions as you go through. And what's amazing in a planetarium dome is if you have a 3D data set and you kick that thing into motion, it feels like you're actually in that astrometrics lab in, in Star Trek, right? It, the, the dimension, even without 3D glasses, just that sense of things moving in a 3D space clicks into the way that our brain understands parallax. And you are no longer looking at light on the surface of a dome. You just see stars flowing out in three dimensions just through the simplicity of having that moving in real time and representing the real 3D positions. All right, get analytical graphics on the phone. They need to be on this. <laughs> I used to work with them a little bit when I was at Lockheed. Well, the, the nice thing is I actually know uh, the developers at uh, all of the, the major planetarium software companies. Uh, we've, we, we go occasionally to the, the uh, Planetarium Society conferences, and I have a lot of uh, colleagues in the planetarium industry. And, and um, what's nice is all of the manufacturers know about Astropix, know about our metadata project, and are all involved in building these hooks into their uh, future updates of the software. So uh, uh, I think we are... When it comes to sort of a, a fun and current way of experiencing the universe, I think we have achieved the "if we build it, they will come" <laughs> goal of uh, the uh, the universe of dreams. Oh, maybe that should be the tagline for Astropix: the universe of dreams. Build it, and they will come. <laughs> I like that. I like that. So now I, I forget. I, do you play? You play Star Trek Online, don't you? I, I remember you saying. Oh yes. You Okay, I, I, I maybe thought, even a little too much, but <laughs> yeah. Well, don't we all just a little too much? Maybe, yeah. So I just wanted to make sure, but I mean, you know, maybe we could add a little starship that flies out through the galaxy and you watch the little ship explore. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had long wanted uh, in the game, I really thought that I, this was a scenario where, boy, if I had just had the connections to, to knowing some developer early on the game to actually be able to talk to them about getting some real space imagery into the game as opposed to, I mean, they have lovely artwork for the space and uh but um, I have to admit, I was impressed. Uh, I, I don't play it, but I follow um, 
Eve online, a friend at work plays yeah. it. And they did a revamp to their, their sector space recently that I have to say is very impressive. They, they based their artwork very much on, on real astronomical imagery, but they even built it out to a geography so that, you know, like so they sort of know where a nebula is. And if the system's far away from it, you'll see it kind of small over in one area. But if you're in the middle of it, it surrounds you. And I really like that idea. They sort of built it out into a geography that you could really clue into different sectors, have different color schemes. And I thought that was kind of cool. But uh, but but Star Trek has always been a lot more about the fantasy colors and the, the layout. So that was a little more to hope for there. But it is fun. I, I actually have just started working on the script for my first Foundry mission. And uh, I finally, mm. finally biting the bullet. I have a story. Ever since... Uh, I went to the uh, the Great Link at the uh, Star Trek Vegas conference with all of the uh, the uh, well known uh, uh, Foundry authors, Ali Mack and Ceridian and and you know the, the, the whole crew. It's like yeah, so now I have this story kind of in my brain, and I'm I'm not going to put too much science in, but uh, I have to admit I actually uh, I really appreciate Ali Mack's thirty stories. Um, uh, he's he's totally my favorite Foundry author. And I love the fact that all of his missions have just this little layer of science that are kind of background to the story. But I remember the first time I played one of his missions, I was just going through, clicking through the dialogue. I'm like, oh my God, that's real. That's right. Awesome, dude. <laughs> so I love, this is where I love the intersection between kind of science and, and fiction. I, I think that science fiction reaches such a huge audience compared to science that if you can just leverage in enough solidity to your idea uh, as a subtext, you don't have to do a lecture in a sci-fi show or so, but there, if it's just, there is an underpinning that is valid. You reach so many more people and hopefully you, you inspire a few to get curious and, and kind of dig into it. Uh, I, I have to say I really respect James Cameron uh, for what he achieved in, in Avatar for this. I, I, yeah. uh, last year I, I had the, uh, the honor of actually moderating a panel uh, with James Cameron uh, speaking at Caltech on the topic of, of science in Avatar. And so we had uh, Cameron, uh, we had a, a, a geology professor, a biology professor, and an uh, oceanography professor. And then I was sort of moderating and representing astrophysics. And uh, I had a chance to sort of meet and chat with him for about an hour and a half before the, uh, the panel discussion started. And, you know, this is a guy who just knows his stuff, right? I mean, there are some writers who sort of go out there and they just write stuff and they sort of bullshit about the stuff they don't know. This guy really does know his background. And while he may simply have decided years ago he wanted floating mountains, he was smart enough to bring in people to say, okay, I want floating mountains. How can this happen? <laughs> and, and put in, uh, put in the, the infrastructure so that there is a sort of a scientific basis underlying the, hallow, the Hallelujah range in Avatar. And so it's just really exciting to know that like Avatar has like a 300-page document that is basically explaining sort of the back science behind the movie. And I think that's phenomenal. That as long as there is, you're conscious of that as backstory. It doesn't have to interfere with the storytelling in the foreground. It's just great to see science um, kind of flesh out the background and and make people curious and want to know more, and then be rewarded that there is a little more to know, and that could become a stepping point into uh, actually reading about astrophysics or biology evolution. Sure. Yeah. Well, I know that's a big part of how I got into it was watching all the science fiction that I did. And- growing up around it and hearing terms because I hear things, you know, and, and then I get curious, what is that? How does that work? Like like gravitational lensing. I remember the first time I heard that, I said, what the heck is that? Well, of course, then I go to Google and then Google leads me to this and then, you know, that leads to five other things with six other weird terms that I'd never heard that I wanted to know what they were. So it's it's great. I mean, that's that's what it's all about is just expanding our knowledge and learning. And I mean, if it can be entertaining and attached to a story at the same time, well, that just helps us remember it better and, and understand its use. I think by putting it in a story, a lot of times you understand uh, better how that science would be used, you know, or why it's be, why it's important. Um, so I, I think it's fantastic. Um, I think Hollywood's done a much better job in recent years of. Uh, of trying to use at least uh, theories of things that are grounded in real science uh, to give us a better understanding of, of how these uh, fantastic worlds could possibly 
become real one day, you know, under under certain principles of science, you know, if if the right things are studied and of course discovered and those and so forth. But uh, it's it's a very enjoyable time to be in science fiction with so much real science being blended. Oh, it it absolutely is, and and then when you, I guess the one thing that makes me so happy to realize is that the uh, like the top comedy in the country, maybe in the world right now, is Big Bang Theory. Yes, and that is the perfect example of. I love that show. They do not pull the punches on their science in the background, and it's funny. They don't have to make up gobbledygook, techno babble based on someone who doesn't understand science thinking they know how to write a scientist, right? They go to a professor at UCLA who hands them real research topics, real cutting-edge controversies, and they just put them right in there. And it doesn't detract from the drama. It actually adds to the comedy, you know? And, the, and the, those of us who actually know the references. Uh, uh, I, uh, they just did an episode recently where they referenced uh, the, uh, an Earth Trojan asteroid, uh, an asteroid that sort of floats in the Lagrange point of the uh, sort of a gravitationally stable point between uh, sort of equilateral triangle between the Earth, Sun, and uh, uh, this orbital point you know that was actually a recent story that came from the wise mission that, that uh, we were actually involved in the, the the press release for that and it's like they mentioned it on big bang theory yeah <laughs> so cool i gotta tell you robert it's just been an absolute pleasure talking to you again and god i could just i could spend hours and hours talking to you so we'll definitely have to uh, get together in the future like i said maybe we'll come up that way and take a tour and uh i just i have 8 million questions, which I'm sure you could expand on. So I, I really look forward. Maybe we'll have you on the show again, too. Just, just you know, who knows? Maybe we'll just talk space and, and you know, uh, astronomy in general. It'd just be fun. Hey, uh, I'm, I'm game. Uh, whatever you guys want would be awesome. I, uh, I can proudly say I do write a tiny little astrometrics report for my fleet uh, 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 journal. So <laughs> I'm all about uh, dealing with the Star Trek community and my fleet community and talking about astronomy. Anyone who's curious. Do you want to, uh, do you want to share your handle with our, our Stowe listeners? Oh, yeah. They- uh, uh, Astro Rob LA. Kind of pretty obvious once you get to know me. <laughs> now, are you, are you in, a, you're in a fleet in game then? Yes, I am. Oh, good. good, good. Which fleet is that? Uh, I'm in Stonewall Fleet. The, uh, oh, Stonewall. The, the okay. Fleet of the original founders of the party. Yes, Brandon. Yeah, that's Brandon's fleet. Yeah. Yeah. Good fleet. Good friends of our fleet. Good. <laughs> good. Good to know. Excellent. <laughs> well, Robert, thank you again so very much for joining us for this episode of Trek It Out, and we hope you'll join us again sometime. Uh, uh, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a real uh, pleasure chatting with you guys. The pleasure was ours. Yeah, absolutely. I love this stuff. This is awesome. Woohoo! Science for the win. Transfer complete. 